Hi, and welcome to episode 21 of Life with Catherine. Thank you for joining me. Today, our guest host is Brian, my husband, and he's going to be talking about retro games. I got started thinking about this topic quite a while ago, and it's been in the back of my mind, the idea of retro games from his generation. What was the draw? What was so interesting about what would make you play Dungeons and Dragons for, I don't know, 17 hours, that kind of thing, where time would stop, you would lose yourself in this world. So um, I just kind of wanted the idea of what's the draw of these older fashioned kind of games and how could you explain that to the new generation uh, or just our generation that's feeling nostalgic of that kind of, what was the experience like and what was so interesting about it uh, statistically and time-wise and friendship building wise. Sorry, I'm cheesy. But anyways, that's what I asked him. And so he's the guest host this week. Thank you, Brian. Here we go. Good afternoon, everybody, and happy Thanksgiving to all those uh, Canadians out there. Uh, it's Brian here. I'm Catherine's husband, and she had asked me to come on her podcast. And uh, first of all, I was completely flattered. And then it became, oh, what do I talk about? So any of the podcasts that we tend to listen to are either done uh, and speak about history or they're comedians or someone who is an expert in a certain subject or certain realm. And so I thought, what, do I, what am I going to talk about? What could I talk about on her podcast? And uh, I think uh, it hit me when we were watching an episode of Stranger Things. And it was the pilot episode. And not to spoil it, but in the beginning, the main characters, the kids, are playing in the basement. And they're playing Dungeons and & Dragons. And um, it got me thinking about my childhood and about how people can be passionate about games that they've played and and why they play them. So I think what I'm going to talk about today is actually a combination of uh, board games as well as video games and some of the reasons behind why they're played and as well as the evolution of these games and uh, what gaming is like today and what it was like back many, many moons ago when I first started playing. So I think what I'll do is uh, I'll start with... Uh, just a real brief introduction, pretty much the first video game that existed was a game called Pong. It was a standalone system uh, that you bought. Uh, the only introduction I've ever had and the only experience I've had with Pong is a friend of mine. His parents had one, and so many years later, when we were in our 20s, I uh, got to go over to his house and see his parents still had it. It was a functioning system, but it was basically just made up of... Uh, lines that uh, slid up and down the screen, screen, and it was basically like ping pong, but your little line slid up and down the screen uh, with the use of a controller. You you got to control uh, how your um, paddle, if you want to call it, moved up and down the screen, and a little and a little square dot moved around the screen, and you basically batted it back and forth. So it was kind of like air hockey, except on a computer screen or on a TV screen, I should say. And uh, so again, very, very primitive, but that was sort of the first game uh, system that uh, that was introduced to uh, us uh, money-paying 
gamers, when I first got uh, introduced to games, I think was when I was around eight years old, and at that time, the mass-produced games that uh, were first on the market were uh, Intellivision and Atari, and I, for whatever reason, fell in love with the Intellivision. I decided to buck the trend of what was uh, the Atari, and it produced a lot of um, replicas of coin-op games, so games that you're used to playing in the arcade, you could now play at home. Uh, the Intellivision was a little different. It had more uh, games, uh, sort of more sports games, more um, games that, again, weren't necessarily readily available on uh, in your local arcade where you paid a quarter or 50 cents at a time to play a video game. And um, television was made by Mattel, yes, the same Mattel that made Barbie and all sorts of other uh, kids' toys. And when I was about eight, I had to have it. I just had to have the Intellivision system. So up until that uh, year's Christmas, I drove my parents absolutely bananas, uh, basically wanting, begging, pleading uh, to get an Intellivision. So um, I remember um, getting it that year at Christmas. Uh, the controllers uh, were uh, wired. They had a uh, coiled wire uh, or cable that attached themselves to the system. So it was definitely pre-pre-pre-wireless uh, controllers. And what was unique about the controllers is they were flat. They were about three inches by four inches or so. And they had buttons on the side. And then they had a recessed uh, keypad that had all the different uh, numbers on it. And what was what made it even more unique is there was a slot that you slid a hard plastic uh, card into. And so each game would come with two, one for the left controller, one for the right controller. And those individual... Uh, numeric buttons now were uh, represented uh, a specific control for that specific game. So that made the Intellivision unique. What also made it unique is at the bottom of the controller there was a uh, gold um, uh, disc that was uh, had a spring in its uh, in in its innards, and basically uh, this disc you you rotated in 360 degrees, and you could control. Uh, your character control, your spaceship, what have you. Um, so it acted like a, a joystick, but again, it was rather a disc. So that was my uh, that was my first hands-on experience uh, playing games. I think uh, what I liked about it is, is as much as I look back and see how primitive uh, the characters were, anything that represented a person was just a little stick figure uh, with uh, the little waving arms and legs. And uh, if they had to shoot a gun, it was a little dot that would fly off the screen um some of the later games i remember playing there was a there was a, a car racing game that uh of all people i didn't think my sister would ever get into video games but uh, she thought it was amazing and laughed her ass off playing uh this game because you, you were it was a set course that you drove around a road around a track and there would be um off-road areas represented by rocks and bushes and things and you could find shortcuts and drive through these shortcuts and meet up with the track again and that's kind of how you would end up uh, winning because if you could find the best shortcut you would cut your time in half and uh, beat whoever you're playing against so uh the, but there were various games on the Intellivision uh that i remember playing what was unique about the boxes when you got the boxes of the gaming system back then 
uh, it looked like wallpaper and that the box was just littered with uh, different games that you could get so it was an adver advertisement within the game in that uh, you would get the gaming system and you'd see on the box oh these are all the games that I could have if I save up my money I can buy all these different games so they it was a smart idea to advertise um, now that you got the system in your home what can I what can I get here they are staring at you in the face and it would just encourage and uh, force kids parents to go out and buy them the, the latest in the next game so um, Again, I, my uh, f first, what got me into into games is I think it was there was a, a level of escapism. Um, I'll talk a, a little bit more about um, the sort of the fantasy aspect of it later, but uh, some of the uh, uh, coin op games or the arcade games that I remember playing as as a kid uh, were like Pac Man and Galaga. Uh, Defender. Uh, there was a uh, there was a track and field game just called that. It was called Track and Field, and you had various events like the high jump and races and hurdles, and uh, the pole vault. And uh, a lot of your success in that game came uh, when you were able to alternate between the left and the right button, and basically mashing the button as fast as you could, alternating left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. And uh, the faster you did it, the faster your character went. And then in certain cases, you would have to jump, and it would be represented by um, a little um, uh, meter showing your angle, and you would have to uh, perform a high jump. You'd have to um, th uh, throw a shot put or what have you, and you'd have to master the exact angle that would get you the best distance, based, and then based on the speed that you had your character going. So I remember playing those games uh, in, uh, in arcades. I think uh, at its peak, there was a game called Dragon's Lair that um, was really ahead of its time in that uh, instead of pixelated graphics, uh, it was like basically playing a cartoon and you took control of the cartoon character and uh, basically you would use uh, the joystick and you would have to perform certain actions at a certain time and if you didn't do them in the right timing, uh, your, your character Dirk the brave knight trying to rescue Daphne, uh, the damsel in distress from the dragon. If you didn't press the uh, joystick in the right direction or in the right sequence, you would basically die. And then up on the screen would come your character, but basically represented by a skeleton with a uh, knight's helmet. So I think that that was a, a real uh, a game breaker for, uh, for for video games, and I think. Another reason that I sort of fell in love with the game system is that you understood that instead of having this giant console that was um, would take up a large corner of your of your of any room in anyone's house, they've now shrunken it down and they've made it available for the consumer at home. So they obviously um, were able to uh, uh, hit a gold mine when it came to uh, uh, the uh, someone being able to design and use the technology of, of that day to basically shrink down what was in a console and, um, and a coin-op video game and uh, put it available in someone's home, just like having color TVs and, and what have you. They were able to uh, take your favorite video games and make them available in, in, your, uh, in your living room. And um, so as I grew up, I started to lean towards uh, certain styles of games. Everybody's different. Uh, there's some people that hate video games, and for those that do uh, like to play them, uh, they certainly like um, 
like what they like and they and I think for me uh, one of the things that uh, that I gravitated toward were sports games I, I grew up on sports as I've become uh, an adult I, I realized that, that there's other things out there in life that um, I just don't have as much time uh, I certainly do follow uh, sports as much as I used to but I don't uh, watch the games as much but uh, when you had a video game system whatever system it may have been and you were able to replicate what your favorite athlete did uh, at home I think that, that was certainly appealing and there was a certain element of that you were the coach that you were able to design that 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 you could be sort of the armchair quarterback that you in your living room could uh, do the best things for your favorite team where maybe the real life coach wasn't able to you're going to take your team to the championship and you're going to win you're going to score that winning goal so there was a bit of a fantasy element to there um, when as I got older uh, there were uh, other systems that were introduced so um, you started out as I said before with the Intellivision and the Atari that became the ColecoVision and the Sega uh, I never owned a Sega but I remember being jealous of those that did because they seemed to put out some of the best sports games on it um, as I got into my uh, early 20s uh, the, the systems like Nintendo came onto the market and uh, Super Nintendo and uh, so I'm just going to talk really briefly about uh, some of the games that uh, that I, I still look back on and I find find uh, that are amazing. Uh, one of them was, of course, with the Nintendo, was Super Mario Brothers. Super Mario Brothers uh, stands up to, stands to the test of time so much that uh, they featured uh, the game at the opening of the recent uh, Summer Olympics in Rio, and uh, it's uh, it was just a an, uh, an amazing experience. I think the hidden elements of the game made it in, endearing in that you could take Mario or Luigi and you would go down a pipe and it would take you somewhere else in the game. You would bra break bricks and you would discover other hidden elements in the game and uh, there was just so many different levels. Uh, you had to time your jumps, you had to time uh, crawling and leaping under sort of these um, uh, flaming uh, arms would uh, almost like a, uh, a long pole that was basically lit a fire and you had to make sure you jumped um, under or jumped over them and uh, so you had to you had to uh, have the correct timing and you you learned through your failure but uh, it's uh, super it's definitely uh, Super Mario Brothers there's been so many other different uh, spin-offs and spawnings of that game that uh, it is probably one of the best games of all time so it certainly makes my list uh, as I said, that uh, I really uh, am drawn to sports games. I find that um, there's, for, for me, uh, there's a lot of replay value in it. For some people, there isn't because uh, from one year to the next, they want the latest team, they want the latest rosters, they want the latest coaches. If their team's jerseys have changed, if their teams have relocated, they can't stand going back and playing an, an older version. So um, within that given season, I find there's a lot of replay value and I'm able to uh, take a team, play a season, play another season, uh, modify it, play even more, so I get a lot of uh, use out of it. So uh, early on, I found that um, being drawn to sports games, um, this is why games like uh, Tecmo Bowl and Super Tecmo Bowl and uh, Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, baseball uh, make it onto sort of my list. Uh, Tecmo Bowl was a, a football game that came out in the early 90s, and uh, what uh, drew me to it is that as, as much as you, you look back on it now and the graphics may be limited uh, for its time, it allowed it had um, 
the uh, actual players were in they got the um, uh, authorization and they got the rights to be able to use the various players so they had real players in the game they had real teams logos they had the big league NFL logo on the middle of the field and uh, I, I think that took it a long way uh, it was fun it was arcadey it um, was very simple in that you only had really four offensive plays and four defensive plays so you had two running plays and two passing plays and um, so you your games could be run quite quickly you could play against a friend one of the um, things that made it sort of interesting but also challenging is that when you were the quarterback if you drop back to pass you would usually have four receivers and if you wanted say the third receiver you had to hit the button three times to cycle through the receivers so if you wanted say the fourth receiver and you hit one and then you cycled to two then you cycled to three and then you cycled the floor and then if by mistake you went too far and you wrapped around to one again you had to rapidly hit the button three more times to get you to that fourth receiver so that could be frustrating but also rewarding um, but it was just uh, based on sort of the limitation of the number of buttons on the on the Nintendo controllers. Uh, but uh, Tecmo Bowl, uh, it's uh, certainly one of my favorites. Um, Super on the Super Nintendo, there was a. Uh, sorry, before I leave that, uh, going back to Tecmo Bowl, I think what fascinates me is when I did a little bit of research for the podcast today, I found a video that I didn't even know existed and. Um, uh, one name that's synonymous with Tecmo Bowl is uh, the uh, amazing running back and former baseball player Bo Jackson. So Bo Jackson was a two-sport wonder, and um, in Tecmo Bowl, they made him so disgustingly fast that anytime you got the ball, you would hand the ball off to him as a running back. You could quite literally run circles around the uh, opposing players uh, before they would ever tackle you. And um, somebody posted a video online. It's about a th about a three minute video of uh, Bo Jackson getting the ball, and uh, the uh, the brilliant and talented uh, person operating the game at that time basically was lapping the field and just showing just how ridiculously fast he was. And he ends up running out the entire first quarter uh, before plunging into the end zone as the clock expired. So the makers of Family Guy apparently saw that video and decided to put it in an episode where uh, Peter, the main character, basically takes Bo Jackson and he's running around the field and uh, his friend and neighbor Quagmire uh, is just driving himself crazy just trying to tackle um, Bo Jackson and he of course can't. So I thought that's pretty cool that it held up to even, uh, even today, 20 plus years later, they're showing it on Family Guy. So bravo. Um, now we'll switch to uh, Ken Griffey Jr. Baseball. Uh, it was made for the uh, Super Nintendo, and I think what really drew me to it is a lot of sports games resonate with me and do really well when they're able to mimic or to copy and to take the important aspects of that sport to make you feel like you, it's a simulation that you're really playing uh, and, and that what you're doing on the field is makes you feel like you're that player, you're that hockey player, you're that quarterback in football, you're that baseball player, the pitcher, the batter, what have you. And so it's it's realistic enough that you feel like you are part of the game, but they also add some personalized elements to it. And I think that's what Ken Griffey Jr. did. Um, 
as much as, as the game originally just featured Ken Griffey Jr. in it and they didn't get the licensing to put in the actual uh, players of that particular year, uh, it did have uh, Major League licensing in that they were able to show each team's um, logos. They had jerseys for the teams. They were able to show the stadiums that the teams played in. And if you really wanted to, you could go in and edit the players' names to put in the actual names. It was time-consuming, but if you were going to do it, damn it, you could do it. And um, in my research, I never, I never knew this. It just shows you how little attention I was paying to it at the time. But apparently, um, when they created the game, they decided to, uh, for example, on uh, the uh, Milwaukee Brewers roster, several of the players were named after fictional superheroes or their... Um, human equivalent like Peter Parker, Bruce Wayne, and Clark Kent, uh, the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, they named uh, several other players after authors like Bram Stoker. So I thought that was uh, that was really funny. But um, getting back to the actual gameplay, it was uh, fast-paced. They had this funky, upbeat sort of organ music so that it paired with the, with the uh, game itself so that when you were playing it, not only the music lent to the pace and you could play a game in about 20 minutes, which is great. A lot of times, if you're trying to play a sports game, a lot of people are turned off by them because they just take so darn long to play. But you could play a game in about 20 minutes. And um, what, uh, what really made it fun is that as much as the players were slightly on the cartoony side, they had bulked up arms and tiny waists and tiny little legs. Um, not all of them, but some of them. It was just the little details, like when the players are, w are waiting for the pitch to come in and they're the batter, they would uh, flex their fingers and, and on the bat, or they would um, uh, they would have they would have certain batting stances that were uh, very similar to the actual players they represented. So you just knew it was your favorite player, even though he was called Joe Smith. It was uh, it was your the favorite player on your given team. And again, you could go back in and, and if you really wanted to, you could edit the names uh, if you just couldn't stand to live without them. But uh, when players are at bat, uh, some of them will blow bubbles uh, you'll, uh, of bubble gum. You'll get players um, uh, uh, chewing and just just little um, body movements that they do. Uh, like I said, the batting stances were, were, were pretty good for, for that time, for the early 90s. They created pretty accurate batting stances for the players. Some of the pitchers had pretty wicked, nasty deliveries um, as well. Uh, the stadiums were uh, were fair, fairly good uh, replications in that the um, the outfield walls of the stadiums uh, were basically at the angle or to the dimensions of their uh, real life counterparts. Uh, looking back, I see Fenway Park has the um, the Green Monster in left field. Wrigley has the ivy around the outfield wall, so they uh, put some attention to detail there. You can make leaping catches. Um, one of my favorites is that anytime one of your players would strike out uh, on rare occasion, they would turn back and look at the screen, screen and go, oh, come on! Like they were frustrated with you. It was like, hey, man, you're the one that struck out. But uh, they would yell at you. Uh, certain players, uh, when they got frustrated after a strikeout, they would turn around and break the bat over their knee. Um, so again, it was just uh, just so much so much fun fun to play, and they, and uh, I think it even even holds up now. It's a game that's uh, definitely playable. So um, so well well done, Super Nintendo. Next, um, I think I'll jump to uh, from jump from the Super Nintendo to the PlayStation. Uh, PlayStation has had. Uh, has evolved over the years from the original PlayStation all the way up to the PlayStation 4. Um, it, 
had games on discs rather than cartridges and so they would be on basically like a, a CD or what was really a DVD and uh, as much as the in the beginning some of the games could be a bit choppy in that uh, the loading time uh, off of the disc and uh, until it came on your screen could be a bit choppy uh, I think one of the games that stands out for me uh, was Resident Evil I do like uh, I do like me a good uh, first-person shooter game or games where you have to explore and solve puzzles and uh, Resident Evil um, took place where you could either be a, a, a particular male character or a particular female character you were walking through uh, various parts of uh, uh, buildings, homes, almost like a museum and you were solving puzzles you would have to gather certain items and use them in other places uh, but looking back on it now uh, seeing seeing the main character walk around the screen it was like they took a walking person and inserted it into a stagnant environment so you would be standing there and you would go to rotate and your character's legs would just flail and it, and it didn't really mesh with the floor and the surrounding they were in but um, what made it unique is that it was almost like a horror movie within a video game in that they would have certain segments of the game that would scare the bonkers out of you scare the bleep out of you um, I remember we uh, we rented Resident Evil one night and there were three or four of us sitting around we were playing at my parents basement it was dark and uh, that added to the uh, environment and the character is walking down a hallway and instead of walking uh, forward or into the screen it was like he was walking towards you and all of a sudden bursting through the window were two rabid Doberman um, attack dogs and I remember it scared the crap out of us um, so it certainly had uh, the ability to uh, mimic a horror movie so I really I really liked it um, you would go down a hallway and you would come upon a door and when the game would go to load the next room all you would see would be a tight shot of the door and everything around it was just black there was really no graphics or anything so it was very limited in its graphics I look back now and just shake my head going oh man but but again at the time it was the bomb it was awesome um, and then a lot of times if you discovered an artifact a, a weapon that was on the wall or a lever to pull uh, there would be scrolling just basic cheap black, uh, white text that would go across the bottom of the screen either describing the object or asking you if you wanted to perform that action um, but again it was uh, it was incredible to play uh, I can't move on any further without just really quickly uh, talking about uh, Wolfenstein 3D reason I, I bring up Wolfenstein 3D is uh, it came out in the early 90s I think somewhere around 92 and what makes it relevant is that it was basically the grandfather the first first-person shooter game uh, that came out um, it basically came out on computer so I know I'm not talking a lot about computer games I had some but I found um, early on I decided to get off of the what I call the um, the carousel of, uh, of video games on the computer because it seems like you would buy a game you would buy a game and then find out oh my computer doesn't have enough memory it doesn't have a fast enough graphics card to be able to play the next version of your favorite game and you're constantly or at least it felt to me that you would constantly needing to upgrade your computer just to be able to, to play these latest greatest games so uh, I realized that uh, for far cheaper you could uh, go out and buy a video game system but Wolfenstein was played on the computer and um, what was really unique about it is that like I said it was the it was basically the first first-person shooter game uh, that came out and 
it was originally published as shareware. So basically what the uh, manufacturers or the, uh, the software company that created it, they would provide you with a certain number of levels for free and they, they got you into the game and basically um, wanted you to order and to buy the uh, the remaining levels. I think they gave you somewhere around eight or ten levels and then after that you basically had to order the rest of them and they would send them to you on floppy disks. Ooh, yes kids, ask your parents about floppy disks. Um, but they would send you the um, remaining levels and it was uh, basically set in uh, World War II. You were in like Wolfenstein's castle and uh, there was a lot of uh, you know World War II Nazi themes and there was also there would be bosses and you were in this what now looks like a really primitive brick walled 3D environment there would be walls that were push walls that basically would have hidden treasures hidden behind it trophies goblets um, you know anything made out of gold and uh, I remember the the boss levels would scare the crap out of me because you'd be walking down a room and all of a sudden you hear we would just hear uh, three words and it would be coming for you and uh, basically this huge steroid beast size size of hu about three human beings this uh, boss this boss soldier would come floating into the room and the fr and the, the your first reaction was to run away run away until you basically got somewhere safe and were able to uh, plot your strategy to, to take this guy down um, I would say that Wolfenstein is responsible for you know so many other first-person shooter games uh, Doom is one that comes to mind is a classic uh, game but um, I think it's something that uh, uh, yeah, you, you, you can't not talk about when you're talking about games because like I said it was the first first-person shooter that was uh, ever ever made and that was 92 somewhere around then um, I'm just going to take a really quick side tour here and um, also introduce um, so now that I've, I've got you sort of um, up to speed on some of the the games that were part of my world sort of growing up and and uh, what uh, the gaming industry looked like back then um, also, I think it would be sort of unfair to uh, to go forward without just taking a, a quick uh, side tour into um, the uh, the subject of board games. And I don't mean you know the monopolies and the you know fun for the whole family uh, games that you would play on the weekend, but my love of sports and uh, the fr the friendships that I made. Um, they a lot of my friends introduced me into sort of um, role-playing games and and again uh, I would be amiss to not talk about them because again this whole uh, discussion came about from uh, memories of things like Dungeons and Dragons and 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 times where people would uh, sit around with their friends and um, uh, play board games that, that you know that predated video games but certainly um, were were available and still are available now and I think what's imp important about the board games is that they allowed you to, uh, like Dungeons and Dragons, I never really got into all that much, and part of me wishes I had, but I always thought that there was a set story, and the story played out in a certain way, and it was just up to you and your characters to basically um, solve a conflict, basically fight. You would roll dice to see if you died, if you lived, if you uh, were able to gather a treasure uh, and continue on your quest and I didn't realize that basically the dungeon master or the person in charge of that 
um, quest that you're on, they basically had certain leeway in terms of what they could speak about and what they could create and they, and they and part of the environment they had the ability to create and I and so I think that really resonated with me and that it it gave people who were playing it um, a, a way to harness their imagination so that's what I even though I, I played it very few times I think that's what I took from Dungeons and Dragons um, for me I mostly stuck with um, sports board games. I'm just going to talk about them really briefly and sort of what they sort of meant and how they would sort of resonate. I think on my list, uh, the first game that I, I played was a National Pro Hockey. Again, I'm Canadian. I like hockey. Sue me. Sorry, but I do. Um, anyways, um, National Pro Hockey, uh, it was available sort of in the 80s. It's probably still available now. It was played on a board that was the size of any typical board game take your monopoly game take your clue game that gives you a size of the board what was unique about it is that uh, the game had you basically being the coach and i think that's what i really drew me to it is that you had the opportunity to decide which players you put out on the ice at any given time so on your side of the board you placed uh your five uh your your five uh, player positional players, your two defensemen and your three forwards, and then at all times, basically your one chosen goalie was on the ice, and so that every two minute interval, you're able to switch off your two defensemen and your three forwards. So that was the aspect where you felt you were the armchair quarterback, you were the coach at home, you got to decide who you're putting out, and your opponent on the other side of the table got to do the same, and every action that occurred in the game would cause the clock to tick 30 seconds and how you kept track of that is you took uh, a little um, character uh, a little um, you took a little game piece and you basically moved it forward there was a little box on the game board that represented 30 second increments so you would basically just move it 30 seconds a minute one minute 30 two minutes you get the you get the idea and you moved it around the around the uh, little box within the board so that you had an idea of how much time was left in in the period each player's card was represented by three zones there would be a defensive zone a neutral zone sort of the middle of the ice between one blue line and the next and then the offensive zone so inside the um, your opponent's blue line and each zone was represented by different combinations of the roll of the dice so you could roll anywhere from 2 to 12 of course when you're using two six-sided dice and it, and it basically would give you results like your player stick handled or your player uh, lost the puck and, and that sort of thing so as much as it wasn't as statistical in its endeavor it was still so much fun to play. I remember uh, playing at my friend's apartment, got introduced uh, to the game there, and we would often run out to his parents' uh, balcony and basically yell off the balcony in our favorite hockey announcer's voice that uh, we had scored, and I'm sure it drove our, our my friend's neighbors uh, absolutely crazy, but considering it took place in the afternoon, usually after school, and we, when we were in high school, hopefully nobody was uh, bothered too much by it. But that first got me into board games, I also uh, played um, one of my other favorites was uh, Pursue the Pennant. It is a baseball game. I know it's now 
available online. You can basically buy it for your computer and, and play online without the use of, of a board, without the use of dice and uh, cards. But it was basically like National Pro Hockey, but even more statistically based. And I think that really resonated with me, with my friend Richard, with my friend Mike, in that as much as you wanted to take on the role of your favorite athlete, of your favorite coach, and try and replicate what they did on the field, what they did on the ice, what they did on the turf, you wanted it to be as realistic as possible. So you wanted that character that you were using to replicate what they did in real life. There's no sense in, in having um, an absolutely average player perform incredibly and an incredible player perform absolutely average. So what Pursue the Pennant uh, did was the first and foremost, they took each player and they gave them a card much like the hockey game did, but rather than having their actions determined by two six-sided dice, they were determined by three uh, ten-sided dice. And so the numbers zero through nine were represented on each die. So you could have rolls from triple zero all the way up to 999, which meant you, meant you had a thousand different uh, rolls that you could end up with. So what they did is they took the batter's card and the numbers and the actions relating to those numbers would go from 0 to 499 and then on the pitcher's card it would be from 500 all the way up to 999 so you can imagine there were so many more different things that could happen your player could steal a base they could strike out they could foul out any sort of action that could happen in a baseball game could happen within pursue the pennant and so i think that really opened our eyes to the idea that we could really, for the first time, sort of control and and replicate what happened on the field, not just in general terms, all the little nuances of the game. If something happened that previous year to a particular player, like there was one year a player was on uh, base, and, um, he, and of course baseball is sort of a slow, methodical game, and he ended up playing like tic-tac-toe, in the sand, what the opposing, I think it was the first baseman, the opposing team's first baseman drew basically a tic-tac-toe um, board in the sand on the on the infield, and the two of them were basically playing tic-tac-toe, uh, tic-tac-toe while uh, the pitcher pitched, and uh, I think the player ended up getting caught and uh, was thrown out or something. So even that action they had decided to replicate and put in the game. So if you rolled an exact roll, you would end up with that special play. So they really put a lot of work into um, trying to replicate uh, just the exact items, the exact actions that happen on a field and not only on the field. And not only did they do that, the box that it came with, you use the base of the box and then you took basically a cardboard insert and you put it around the outfield and that represented the outfield wall of your various teams stadium and some of them were very specific you would put inserts in so that if it was if it was just a rounded curved wall then that was sort of your generic stadium and a lot of the teams uh, arenas or stadiums were represented by that curved wall but if it was Fenway in Boston or Wrigley in Chicago they would have um, certain uh, th th they would capture the dimensions uh, of the outfield wall so again it just added to sort of the realism as much as it wasn't replicated visually in 
like it would be in a video game, you were sitting there and you had this board game and you just, you could easily feel that you had control of your player. You had the ability to uh, accurately replicate what your favorite athlete, what your favorite coach uh, does on a field. So um, that was probably one of my favorites. We um, would often go uh, downtown Vancouver to a place called the Games People. Uh, it's in Ga it was in Gastown. I, I was I, in my research. I found that the, sadly they closed many years ago. But imagine, imagine basically going to sort of the mecca of board games. They would sell just about any board game there, sports or otherwise, family fun board games. They had Snifty Snakes. Yes, look up Snifty Snakes. They had Rock'em Sock'em Robots displayed in the window. They had a few coin-op video games in the back that you could buy. But it just felt like home. Like you went there and the, sh the store felt like it had been in business for 20, 30 years. It probably was. It was sort of in an older building in downtown Vancouver. And you could just tell that the people that ran it, that owned it, um, it was their passion. And so it just, it made you feel very welcome when you went there. Kind of like nowadays, people go to a comic store or a collectible store. Um, that's what uh, the games people sort of made us feel like when we were there. So my, my thanks to the people that ran and owned the uh, games people. So uh, the last thing I think I'll get into is uh, where we are at now with uh, video games and video game systems. And where I left off, it was sort of uh, just transitioning from the Super Nintendo, which was a cartridge-based system, to uh, the PlayStation, which was a disc-based system. And uh, as many of you know, uh, PlayStation has gone from the PS1, PS2, PS3, and we are now at the PlayStation 4. And I, I would also have to mention, of course, there's the various Xbox systems, and I think there's still the Wii system. Is the Wii system still around? Somebody can tell me, but I think the Wii system is still around. But what we have now on the video game market is we have uh, the various systems you are able to uh, play your games wireless, and I think wireless is huge. You can literally wander around your room with your controller. You don't have to worry about the limitations of like a six-foot cord or a two or three-meter cord. You can uh, uh, play the game wherever you want to, within your home, within your man cave, within your house. You can um, use headsets. Uh, I think one of the hu uh, hugest hugest one of the biggest things that has uh, come forward with with video games is that you can play online and the systems now unlike the predecessors unlike the the segas the super nintendos they now have the ability to basically link to the internet and some of the games that i play like especially the sports ones your favorite player gets traded or they create the game and it's really not up to par. They've, they've done a really good job making the game, but there's still some elements about it that people go online in masses and they complain about. Well, the, the manufacturer, the, the, the software company that makes the game, they can go and create patches for the game or updates to the game and they basically can um, upload them so that you can uh, basically go online and go, oh, there's a new patch for the game. and the corrections can be made almost instantaneously. Your favorite player that was on team A, that's now on team B, if they want to, they can they can create it so that you can um, now have that player on your favorite team. So I think that's, that's one of the biggest things is that being able to play online, but also having that online connectivity so that you can upgrade games that you have uh, 
and then also the, if there's any patches or changes that need to be made you can make over a matter of seconds or minutes uh, through the connection to the internet. Uh, nowadays from a visual standpoint there's uh, there are 3D TVs, some of the games have uh, basically tapped into the ability to use uh, 3D televisions. There's now 4K TV, which is basically uh, 4000p, so the, uh, the, the, the graphics and the resolution uh, are going to be amazing. That's still, that's still new. It's, it's in, it's the, the TV is instead of a new technology, uh, but, and uh, very few things are, are made, I believe, for the 4K TVs, but I'm sure they're coming. You also have VR goggles, virtual reality goggles, where you're able to basically play hands-free and you're really, really immersed into the environment that you're trying to play in. Um, one of the challenges to home video game systems are certainly that device that you carry around in your briefcase, that device you carry around in your pocket uh, at pretty much all times, and that would be your cell phone. So many people now are, are playing games on cell phones. There are apps, there are games that you can play. Uh, most recently, of course, Pokemon Go, where not only the uh, player is playing the game on their phone, but you can certainly play it in a real-world environment. And it's hopeful that the people that are playing it, I've, I've never played it, but I see people in my neighborhood, I'll go by one of our local parks and it'll be pouring rain. I'm like, what are those two kids doing under an umbrella in the pouring rain? Oh, they're playing Pokemon Go because there's Pokemon characters in our local park, which there are. So it encourages people to socialize a little bit more than sitting in their dank basement or their dank living room and uh, not uh, talking to anyone. Um, circling back around to the, uh, the ability to play online, that is, um, I think, incredible for those that want to, for those that want to reach out to other people. You can play uh, against people online. You can play cooperatively online. Uh, that has been available for, for, for years now. I think the only downside is you get the occasional troll that uh, plays online and decides to um, hide behind their anonymity and basically yell and scream and taunt you when they, when they win. And that part of it doesn't appeal to me, so I'm not a huge online gamer. But, for example, the latest FIFA soccer that's out, soccer, for those of you that don't know, there's 11 players on each side. So if you really wanted to, you could get a game going online of FIFA soccer of up to 22 people. So you could have 11 people on one side and 11 people on the other, and they're all human-controlled. And to me, that just boggles my mind, but that is available if you want to. Uh, the, down the downsides of uh, a lot of the online gaming is the lag time and what I mean by that is sometimes you will be playing and all of a sudden the game will slow down and it will just drive especially online uh, sports gamers uh, I'm sure it drives the heck out of online first-person shooters as well where they're about to perform a task they're about to go in for the kill they're about to score a goal and basically the system shuts right down so that still hasn't been uh, sorted out yet, but we've certainly come uh, a huge, uh, dis we've traveled a huge distance between uh, the mother of all games, uh, that would be Pong, basically the, 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 um, the epicenter of all the games being uh, Pong and uh, having to get games on cartridges like the Atari and Intellivision and even the Super Nintendo and the Sega. Uh, we're able to get it on disc, but now 
now you can you can load games onto your cell phone and you can play happily on your cell phones. Uh, there are certain limitations, of course, but I think the challenge for a lot of the console game manufacturers is the market of the cell phones, and they're having to basically diversify themselves and either make games for cell phones that are compatible with cell phones, games that are on console, make versions on the cell phones, or just have one-offs that are that are meant specifically for cell phones, or acquire companies and take basically a takeover and buy companies that uh, sell games for um, for cell phone players because what you can do on cell phones is in just in general terms a lot of these games you play some of them you can collect and trade and uh, if you want to develop your character and I'm using that term loosely whatever you want to um, develop either your character's attributes or the weapons they carry or the abilities they have. If you want to, you can spend real money and buy packs or buy upgrades. And so that's where they tend to make their money. They get you to either get the game for a minimal price or for free. And then you basically download the game and then they're hoping like heck that you open your wallet and uh, buy upgrades to compete with all the other people that are playing online. So I think that's where video games are going now. Uh, long gone are the days when I played and you would get a basic game system and uh, would have to rent games. Yes, rent games at a, either a video game store or a Monpa movie store. So I think I've covered off about as much as I can cover off today and hopefully you get some enjoyment out of it. Sorry if I rambled on here at length, but I uh, just wanted to re just wanted to thank anyone and everyone that may have listened today. Again, to our listeners in Canada by the time it comes out. It will have passed, but happy Thanksgiving to everyone, and uh, thank you so much for listening. Okay, good day, good afternoon, good night.